0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 9th, 2019. On this week's show, the New Yorker's Louisa Thomas will join us to talk about Bianca Andreescu's big win over Serena Williams at the U.S. Open and Rafael Nadal's remarkable five-set victory over Daniil Medvedev. Our colleague Ben mathis Lilly will also be here to assess Antonio Brown's transcendent if short-lived career with the Oakland Raiders and his escape to the New England Patriots. We'll also discuss the Clemson Tigers' college football dynasty and the perhaps over-the-top, maybe creepy techniques its coaches and staffers have used to build and maintain it. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fancis. He's the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Uh, Stefan, I'm upset with you. Why? You know. You know why. Because at the end of the Greece-US game in the Basketball World Cup, your countrymen, the lesser Antetokounmpo fantasy, <laughs> flagrantly maliciously fouled my countryman Harrison Barnes. And no apology from you, from any of the Greece players. We
1: apologize to no one. <laughs> For nothing.
0: <laughs> no one for nothing. I like it. That's the Greece, uh, the national motto. Yes. <laughs> Since when are you a big Harrison Barnes defender anyway? Love Harrison Barnes. You know, anyone who wears the red, white, and blue and the stars and stripes, I'm a fan of theirs. And whoever wears the blue and white, I'm a fan of. Zito y <laughs> All right. Agree to disagree. Serena Williams won her 23rd Grand Slam title at the 2017 Australian Open, Beating her sister Venus while amazingly she was pregnant with her daughter Alexis Olympia. A year and a half later, after a difficult pregnancy and birth and a bunch of injuries, Serena even more amazingly made it all the way to the Wimbledon final before losing to Angelique Kerber. In the next Grand Slam after that, she lost to Naomi Osaka in the US Open final, the match made famous by her series of confrontations with chair umpire Carlos Ramos. This year, after losing in the quarterfinals in Australia and the third round of the French Open, Serena made it back to the Wimbledon final where she got blown out by Simona Halep. And this past weekend, in yet another U.S. Open final, Serena Williams failed for the fourth time to secure her 24th Grand Slam, losing in straight sets to Canadian teenager Bianca Andreescu. Here is Serena in her post-match press conference.
2: It's, it's really hard right now to take that moment in and to, to say, um, you did Okay. I don't believe I did, you know? And I believe I could have played better, and I believe I could have done more, and I believe that I could have um, just been a better, been more Serena today. And I don't honestly don't think Serena showed up, and I have to kind of figure out how to get her to show up in Grand Slam
0: Joining us now is Louisa Thomas of The New Yorker. Great to have you on, as always, Louisa. Great to be on. So if there was any doubt before um, Serena Williams losing in Grand Slam finals is now officially a thing. We just heard in that clip Serena acknowledge as much. It was, for her, a very open and introspective Q&A session. Andrescu played very well. We'll talk about her more in a minute. But um, it seemed to me, Louisa, and I'm curious if it did to you, that Serena was struggling mentally in that match.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it came out in her second serve especially. Uh, Serena's serve has always been her most imposing weapon and both her first serve and her second serve just weren't there this weekend you could tell that she was tight she was nervous and and this is definitely a pattern it's also true that bianca andrescu is probably the best player in the world right now not serena williams and and that probably unnerved her too except
1: that serena was so dominant in the earlier rounds i mean she completely demolished maria sharapova in the first round of this tournament she completely demolished her opponent in the quarterfinals um what was that six one six love um in 44 minutes in yeah. 44 minutes i mean it did not look going into this final like oh serena still on the way back it looked like she was back
0: she is healthier she's moving better as you wrote in your piece uh, louisa
2: the movement really stood out in this tournament every um other slam going in i was like, you know what this is she is such a fierce competitor that I always thought, you know, she would really have a strong chance of coming through, but she was moving so well. And in that semifinal match against Alanis Fidelina she was moving phenomenally. I mean, she was moving as well as, as I've ever seen her move. I really thought, oh, wow, this is Serena, as Serena would say. Serena is back, but it wasn't there.
0: So, you know, to answer your question, Stefan, I think one of the reasons that she looked so dominant in... You know, the first big chunk of the tournament was that she was playing well. she got out to Leeds, and she was playing opponents who she could dominate both physically and and mentally. Like none of the the folks that she was playing in the first, you know six matches in the u s Open were on her level. She lost a set to Katie McNally. 17-year-old American who did not look afraid against Serena, but nobody else really went up to her level. But in this final, as it happened with Simona Halep and Naomi Osaka and Angelique Kerber in the previous finals, she was up against an opponent who did not fear her, who got out to a really good start. And perhaps the fact that, you know, Serena was not clearly the best player on the court, that's what led her to kind of spiral and get down so far that when she did finally come back, it was too little, too late. It
1: definitely felt like the emotional vulnerability was exploited by Andrescu. I mean, the the announcers, I don't know who it was, whether it was Chris Everett or John McEnroe, but someone said at the very beginning that Andrescu deferred. She won the coin toss and could have served first, but she allowed Serena to serve first, knowing that if she broke her, that she had this plan. If she broke her, she knew that would affect Serena immediately. And she broke her.
2: She always um, elects to return. I believe she said that afterwards. So that oh, wasn't okay. so much of a, a power play. But it, it never did mind. Work. It <laughs> did work. <laughs> and and it's also true that in our press conference, she said that you know she thought that maybe Serena was a little bit intimidated by her returns. And I heard wow. that. I was like, wow. I have really never heard anyone say I think that I intimidated Serena Williams. But you know what? Maybe she's not wrong because her pressure on Serena serves was really stood out. Serena was serving terribly. That is absolutely true. She was returning really well and really aggressively. The amazing thing about her though, is that that's not all her game is. She has touch. She has feel. She takes a lot of pace off the ball. Sometimes, you know, anyone who just watched her in the final thinks, oh my gosh, she's a woman who hits the ball just 90 miles an hour. And that's true. But if you watch some of her other matches, you would see someone who's playing with a lot of variation, a lot of different spins. I mean, that she one of the reasons she's so exciting is that she has such a complete game.
0: We'll get to Nadal and Medvedev in a second, but there are a lot of parallels between Andrescu and Medvedev in terms of how strong they've been this year. They've had the best kind of run-up to the US Open of anybody in the game. And you saw that confidence with both of them. And with Andrescu, you know, we can probably make a little bit too much of this, but it's hard not to notice. Her yelling out, come on, just being so demonstrative in a way that in Serena's matches, it's usually Serena that way and that a woman on the other side of the court is silent. But Andrescu is not deferential. She has no reason to be. She's the best player, uh, has been the best player in the world on form and on results all year. And in order for Serena Williams to win this match, even though she's looked good, she was going to have to play the best match that she's uh, played probably in her, her comeback. And she just wasn't able to muster that in this moment. There was one thing like Chris Everett was saying in the post-match, like in all these finals and all four of them, like these women played the matches of their lives. I don't think that's true. That's an exaggeration. andrescu has been playing awesome all year. She's eight to no against top <laughs> 10 players in her career. And I think it's just putting blinders on to say that Serena had nothing to do with this and that Andrescu just played like super lights out. You saw when Serena started to play well in the second set that she could hang with her and could beat her. She just wasn't playing well enough.
1: Yeah, she didn't start though until she was down 1-5 in the second set.
2: I mean, I I completely agree. Um, Halep did play the match of her life. Andrescu didn't. I think that a lot of Serena's hesitation might have had to do with the fact that, you know, we talk about her quarterfinal match, which she won in 44 minutes. I saw that described, I can't remember who did it, but as batting practice. And that's true. You know, if you tee up a certain kind of ball for Serena, she will pound up for winners all day long. But Andreescu really had a plan and she probably had a backup plan and a backup plan and a backup plan. And Serena knew that too.
1: Back to Andreescu for a second. How much Louisa do you feel like players like her Learn from Serena. I mean, this is a, a young woman. She's 19. You know, four years ago, she said that she was, like, writing her name on fictitious U.S. Open trophy checks um, to get psyched about her, her future career, Um but she plays. Did she get
0: arrested for passing bad checks? Or it's... <laughs> yeah,
1: she updates every year. Yeah. She, the, the, this it's not just that she is strong and powerful and has adopted a lot of the tactics that Serena has used against weaker opponents. It's that she displays this raw, aggressive confidence. There is no fear there. This is like no bullshit athlete.
2: It's hard to know what's inherited or what's her own personality. I mean, I look at her mother and I think, okay, this is a a girl who was raised in a family that, you know, really encouraged her to be herself um, in the very best way. Um, But also it it is absolutely true that Serena Williams helped establish this real like right for young women to stand up for themselves and, and be strong and be proud and competitive and ambitious in ways that, you know, Maybe they haven't always in the past. I mean, I, I really do think that she modeled a certain kind of confidence that Andrescu is, is showing in, in, in spades.
0: Last quick thought on this is that I think similar to LeBron James, we can maybe punish Serena for making these finals and losing in them, just like LeBron has a bad totally. record in the finals because he he actually made it there. You know, Roger Federer, who's very similar in age to Serena, thirty-eight years old, loses in the quarterfinals, kind of goes away against Dimitrov. Whether it was because of stamina or, or injury, we don't know. But you know, Federer was not in the final to suffer a mental, uh, you know, lapse like uh, like Serena Williams did. So it's you know, nobody in the sport, despite the fact that she hasn't been able to get number twenty-four, has had a strong run of Grand Slam performances as Serena Williams has had since she came back from having her child. It's very impressive.
2: Totally impressive. For our final, I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Nobody's shown that high-level consistency.
0: Somebody pointed out that Serena Williams is the same age
1: as Lindsay Davenport, Martina Hengis, Justine Henin, and Kim Clijsters.
2: It's amazing.
0: All right, let's talk about the men's final. On Sunday, Rafael Nadal took a two-set lead over Daniil Medvedev. Even Medvedev himself said he was starting to think about his loser's speech, and then he came back from a breakdown in the third, won the third, won the fourth, and fell behind in the fifth, but actually had a break point to get it back even in the fifth set before Nadal prevailed, 19th Grand Slam title for Nadal, one behind Federer um, for the all-time lead. But let's talk about this match and talk about Medvedev. This was an incredibly impressive performance and comeback by him, and the match was just played at an unbelievable level. Um, the baseline rallies were long and torturous and they were, you know, still playing at that level after four and a half hours.
2: This guy is amazing. I had no idea what to expect. I texted a friend after Nadal went up 30 love in the match and I said, Medvedev's not going to win a single point. And then I texted him, you know, a few minutes later and said, because this friend actually, I think has a game that looks just like Medvedev's. I was like, congratulations, you're making the US Open final next year. He's got this ability to suffer in front of our eyes, and he just brought it. It was it was unbelievable. I had no idea what to expect at any point in that match.
0: We haven't seen anybody, Stefan, I think, like him. That's he's tall and skinny, six foot six, but he doesn't just move well for a big guy. He moves as well, I think, as maybe anybody except for Novak Djokovic in all of men's tennis. And I don't know who's training this guy, but. Somebody has, like, it usually takes a long time. Like, he's never won a five-set match. It usually takes a long time for guys to build up stamina. But his ability to hang in with Nadal in these long baseline rallies and actually get the better of Nadal for a long period of the match in these long rallies. It's not like he was only winning when he had big serves. Um, This guy is, like, weird. He's like a freak. Well, Physically, you do not look at Medvedev
1: and think, oh, fantastic athlete. This guy's going to be at the top of a sport for, for 15 years. But that, the, I mean, the, the intensity of those rallies were incredible. And as Luisa just pointed out, the fact that he was on the brink of losing in straight sets and losing that third set like 6-2 and comes back and pushes it to five was really remarkable. And what makes it difficult to go the distance against Nadal and how did Medvedev do that?
2: I think that he's sort of, once he decided to dig in, he was like, well, it's going to be five hours and it's going to hurt. And here we are. And it did. I mean, I do think a couple of things. One, it's amazing the way he didn't did it. I just said dug in, but it's not like he just kept grinding. He started serving and volleying. You know, he was doing all sorts of weird, different, unusual things for him. He's one of these people who just is willing to try anything and everything if it helps him win. And lately it's been helping him win a lot. I do think maybe we've all been a little punked, you know. <laughs> he looks like he's about to keel over, but actually, you know, he can almost outlast the guy that nobody in the world can outlast. I think that he is so much fun to watch. His game is really weird. It's very like public courts in this kind of really interesting way. He looks like he's just been almost self-taught. I was sort of joking that Bianca Andrescu is like. Medvedev with technique, you know. I mean, he's just like I don't know how he learned to play tennis or where, but I want to go sign up.
0: <laughs> so Andrescu is the first player man or woman to win a Grand Slam in in singles that's born in the 2000s. Medvedev in this match became the first man born in the 1990s to ever win two sets in a Grand Slam final. Like that's it's a so dark. <laughs> that whole generation. He's like redeeming the like lost generation of men's tennis with this performance. And, uh, you know, it's kind of joking, but we've been waiting for a decade (laughs) to see somebody from the, like, next generation stand up to Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, and to some extent Murray. And it's just never happened. Even with this match, for the last three years, it's only the big three that have won majors. Um, And Medvedev is, you know maybe he saw Andrescu and got inspired. Like he didn't look afraid. He hasn't looked afraid all summer. Um, and maybe it will like be inspiring for the whole field um, that he fell behind two sets against the greatest fighter and maybe the history of the sport. And he didn't succumb and all, and like had Nadal, it looked like for, for a minute where, where he wanted him. And it's not like he lost the match because of any kind of weakness. Like he just got beat, that's all.
1: The other reason I think this is hope inspiring is that, you know, we've still got four or five more years of Nadal and Djokovic. They're 32 and 33, and they are performing still at an incredibly high level. So I think it's really important for men's tennis that someone from the younger generation has demonstrated they can get to a final and make a run at a final against one of these guys.
0: All right, let's talk about the other factor with Medvedev, which is his personality and attitude. I talked uh, a couple weeks ago, I was ahead of the curve on this, people, about how he got uh, defaulted from a match on the Challenger Tour for saying that a black chair umpire and his black opponent were quote unquote friends, which does not reflect super well on him. Um, He also threw coins at an umpire at Wimbledon. Then at the US Open, he kind of took this penchant for conflict to a new level in his third round match with Luciano Lopez, he snatched a towel away from a ball man. And that led the crowd to be uh, increasingly angry at him and boo him. And Medvedev won. And this is what he had to say to the crowd after the match.
1: First of all, what I can say that thank you all
2: guys, because your energy tonight, give me the win. Because if you were not here, guys, I would probably lose the match. Because I was so tired, I was cramping yesterday, it was so tough for me to play. So I want all of you to know, when you sleep tonight, I won because of you.
0: The when you sleep tonight, I think is the best part. Louisa, how did he go from that moment of playing up, like hamishly playing the, the villain and trolling the crowd, to being a guy that people were like celebrating and chanting his name on Sunday?
2: I mean, it was really moving in his um, concession speech or whatever you call it. I'm going to say this positively this time, you guys really carried me through and he seemed to mean it. There's a little bit of a Jekyll and Hyde thing with him, you know, where I think sometimes on court, he seems overcome by this like rage and he can't seem to see past it. This is something he's talked about pretty openly. Um, People have compared him to, you know, a guy like Nick Kyrgios, but he seems very different because he does seem actively to be working on this. He has a psychologist sitting in his player's box you know he this is something he's kind of owned a little bit in the past it's really important to acknowledge that he's acted like a bad guy in the past he said some really awful things it's also great that he's owning up to it and 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 kind of working on it so I give him a lot of credit I think he's a little bit crazy um and maybe it was going to take a guy with a little bit of crazy to be the first one to break through because. There is no traditional deference to him. There is just a little crack that I can't peer into and it's awesome.
0: I would push back on that a little bit because I think Kyrios has also been open and talked about how he needs to work on things and, and fix it. And I think part of it is just like we need to wait and see and see if his behavior changes and, and how it changes. He's definitely now gotten affirmation and the benefit of the doubt from the crowd based on his his play. And he's very can be a very charming Guy, I think the big difference with between him and Kyrios Stefan is that Medvedev has shown in a shorter time in the spotlight of the sport, but that he can use and channel his anger um, in a positive way as far as results go on the court. Like I haven't seen an example. At least this year, of him getting mad and him then playing worse. It seems like it's actually the opposite. Right. And I
1: saw no evidence. You saw no evidence in the Nadal match, particularly, of him getting frustrated or down or banging anything or throwing anything in the in the first two sets plus. And as far as the crowd goes, he definitely challenged it, but it also felt like this was like the classic example of a New York U.S. Open crowd trying to behave like it thinks a New York U.S. Open crowd is supposed to behave. And I didn't feel like they went far enough in the final. It was still predominantly Nadal focused, and Rafa chance. Um, If the New York crowd really wanted to live up to the, to the stereotype, it totally should have gone all
0: in on Medvedev during the comeback. Louisa Thomas, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: I feel like this next segment, like some famous person receiving some dumb award, needs no introduction. But it is worth noting that the last two months of Antonio Brown's life certainly are the first in the history of humankind to involve a hot air balloon, cryotherapy-induced frostbite, football helmet certification standards, the word cracker, a possibly illegal wiretap, a professionally crafted Instagram video, John Gruden— and Bill Belichick. One of the best wide receivers of the last decade is a New England Patriot now, and I have to say that against all logic, I love this outcome with the fire of 10,000 Suns. Joining us now is Slate's Ben mathis Lily, Hey, Ben.
3: How are you guys doing?
1: We're doing good.
3: Not as good as Antonio Brown, though.
1: The Brown saga is at once totally absurd and amusing, but it's also really serious in what it says about the rules that govern where professional athletes get to play and how they can maneuver to do that. I don't think there are any uh, angels in this story, Josh. There were problems with Antonio Brown's entire career and the way he's behaved, certainly at the end in Pittsburgh. But at the same time, I'm actually kind of sympathetic to him wanting to get out of a toxic situation and get out of, you know, playing in a place that maybe he didn't want to from the beginning.
0: A toxic situation. (laughs) That he helped create. (laughs) He was pouring the poison into a barrel with a skull and crossbones on it already. The thing that's the most fascinating about this is like working backwards through your whole list. If you want to read that list to us backwards now, (laughs) Stefan, it ends with (laughs) Belichick, and then you have the surreptitious taping, and Mm -hmm. then you go back through the helmet and the hot air balloon and the cryogenic foot burning. Like, I don't think he would have intentionally blistered his feet in a cryogenic chamber but i think everything else has now been called into question was he sincere in not wanting to play because the nfl didn't allow him to wear his helmet or was that a way to get the raiders to be annoyed with him and and release him it seems like towards the end we now have enough reporting on you know chris mortensen reporting that he brought in social media consultants to, like, how do I do bad tweets so the Raiders will release me? Like, he legitimately brought in consultants to figure out how can I frame what's happening with with me and the Raiders so that they will release me. Like, at least part of this is clear, like, intentional bad and disruptive behavior so he can orchestrate his departure and go to New New England.
1: Right. And also... His agent is Drew Rosenhaus, and it would not surprise anybody if Rosenhaus was involved in helping to orchestrate some of this. I mean, that Instagram video, that was really professionally produced. I mean, somebody sat around and said, let's tape your conversation with your head coach and then let's use that tape in a lovingly crafted Instagram video that will annoy the shit out of the organization and certainly
0: lead to your release. Do you have outside help with your bad tweets, Ben, or are they all yours?
3: Well, I like that the idea is that he had to uh, ask someone if posting private correspondence <laughs> from his boss where they find him for conduct documental to the team would, would be good or bad for his relationship it's with that It's always just boss.
0: good to make a phone call and consult an expert just to make sure... <laughs> That you have things right.
3: I certainly want to know how much that consultant bills per hour and, and you know, and then obviously how I can maybe become a part of that firm.
0: <laughs> Let's listen to an excerpt from that
3: video. Let me ask you this, do you, you wanna be a writer or not? I've been trying to be a writer since day one. I've been fucking working my ass so hard anyway. I don't know why it's a question of me being a writer, like do you guys want me to be a writer.
0: Stop this shit. Just play football. How hard is it, man? You're a great
3: football player. Just play football. Yeah, but I'm I'm more than a football player, man. I'm a real person. And about the football, I know how to do that. I'll show you guys down in the desert. This is my life. Ain't no more games.
0: Ben, I think the most fascinating thing about that surreptitiously taped call with John Gruden is that, like, private phone call Gruden is the exact same as public Gruden. So while like Antonio Brown is out there just like saying different stuff to different people every second of every day, like Gruden who seems like the most like fake and cartoonish coach is actually just being John Gruden all the time. You're saying he's a fake and cartoonish person. I wouldn't say that. I'm saying his cartoonishness is real. He's keeping it real.
3: Yeah. I think that the strange thing, given, as you guys have mentioned, that this was clearly a professionally produced and kind of premeditated video, is that I kind of came out of it thinking, like, yeah, John Gruden is the one who's handling the situation correctly. Uh, you know, like, he's like, hey, you're a great player, I would love to have you on the team, but, like, you've got to, like, actually play for the team. I mean, is there anything really inappropriate about what Gruden is saying in that conversation?
1: No, and that's probably what Gruden said. I thought it was amusing. He didn't say, I'm hiring a lawyer to, like, investigate, you know, felony
0: illegal wiretapping (laughs) charges. But that's why it's odd. It's like, obviously, the team is not going to look, despite what Gruden said, it's, like, not ideal to have a player release... A video like this with, with private communication, but I don't know if Brown was trying to make Gruden look bad or what his goal was here. Because if he was trying, like he's the one who ends up looking more more like a heel, and yeah. you know, posting the letter in which the team find him uh, on Instagram as well, confronting Mayock, maybe or maybe not calling him a cracker, Mike like Mayock,
1: the general manager.
0: Whatever Antonio Brown's intentions were, he got to where he wanted to go in the end. But people, whether it's in the NFL, fans, commentators, nobody is like thinking super highly of Antonio Brown today. And so from like a PR brand maintenance perspective, I guess he just like values being on the Patriots and potentially winning a Super Bowl more than, like, having people like him.
1: It's not as if people really liked Antonio Brown before he became an Oakland Raider either, though. not, Not that much to lose, I guess. No, but let's also evaluate the way the Raiders handled this. I mean, yeah, it is incredibly difficult for NFL teams to deal with this sort of behavior, you know, the distraction theory of how training camps and NFL hierarchies are supposed to run. But at the same time, you know, It was their choice to make a public show of fining him hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was their choice to go in front of microphones during training camp and ream him out. They knew what kind of a personality they were dealing with when they traded for him. So either you make real... Changes in your behavior. You make exceptions for someone like Antonio Brown, or you don't trade for the guy in the first place.
3: It's a mystery on almost every level. And I think that maybe the best explanation is just that neither party knew what they wanted. I think the, the where the theory that he was orchestrating the move to the Patriots kind of falls apart is as uh, Mike Florio pointed out on Pro Football Talk, he lost what, $21 million in guaranteed money here. And generally, being on the Patriots, you know, being on a good team for Almost every athlete is not worth that much money. So I'm not entirely convinced that this was, a, as they say in politics, a 12-dimensional chess move. It kind of seems like he wants to just do whatever he wants, and he wants people to respect him for that. And beyond those two goals, I'm not sure if he had any kind of premeditated kind of strategy to this well
1: i don't know i'm i'm kind of of the mind of fuck mike mayock and fuck john gruden and fuck the nfl antonio brown found a way to subvert the most draconian absurd salary system in professional sports he's clearly a different person to put it mildly but he also recognized his value his agency his agent advised him correctly how to fuck over his ridiculous employers and he becomes an unrestricted free agent after this season. So he makes maybe up to $15 million this year, so half of what he was guaranteed in Oakland, and he gets to hit the free agent market after playing in New England and presumably, obviously, no guarantees here, but if past is any predictor, that he will behave and catch and do well.
0: We should also say that when the Raiders, as you said, make a made a public show of finding him, all this money, they also voided the guarantees in his contract. And so at that point- At that
1: point, what was he going to do?
0: Well, at that point, it became obvious that Brown was trying to get released and even said publicly, release me. Wait, wait, wait.
1: At that point, it was obvious that the Raiders wanted to get rid of him.
0: Yeah. So there was some kind of mutual interest there in this outcome, if not in the outcome of him going to the, the Patriots. I don't think anybody, but the Patriots wanted him to go to the Patriots and Antonio Brown. But- you know, Ben, as we're making this this calculation, Stefan says, like, he becomes an unrestricted free agent now after this season. And so it's not like, and he was actually, a, he could have signed with anybody before he made the deal with the Patriots. So he lost all these guarantees, but he could have gotten any kind of contract with any kind of team that he wanted to. He just chose to take this deal with the Patriots and then become a free agent again, presumably after having, you know, he's betting on himself that he's going to have a strong season.
3: Sure, and, you know, but it's football, you know, betting on himself having a strong season and, and remaining healthy, which is obviously um, a lot more fraught. I mean, even, you know, even in other sports, basketball, baseball, you know, generally players don't like to make the bet that they're going to remain healthy for an entire season. And then this is a you know, much more dangerous sport than than any of those. So I, if he is doing this, I mean, it's 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 got to be one of the most extreme, if not the most extreme move we've seen in the player empowerment area, you know, to give give up $20 million uh, in, the, you know, betting on yourself that you're going to save I mean, say, given okay, what we've seen in the last
0: last few months, I can't imagine Antonio Brown doing something extreme. Like, <laughs> what what are the chances that he would do something bizarre and, and unprecedented?
3: Well, that's that's kind of what goes back to the Raiders' mistake and all of this. I mean, like, that idea that you're going to get Antonio Brown to play for your team and then just not and that you're going to bring him to heel I mean that's that's obviously to me their central mistake right like you you get this guy on your team and you you've got to do let him do whatever he wants I mean that's just you know I don't that's not maybe fair but this is uh, someone who I was just looking at this he either went to or considered and 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 had a problem with going to Uh, Florida State, Alcorn State, North Carolina Tech Prep, Florida International, and Central Michigan. That's just his college career. So the idea that you could get this person at his current age and kind of by using fines... Get him in to make him into a, a kind of Gruden grinder. I mean, that's to be the most ridiculous mistake in all of this,
1: right? And that's the conceit of people like John Gruden and the NFL more largely. I mean, if you right. watched any of Hard Knocks, Gruden standing in front of the room, you know, calling these guys men and screaming at them to buy into the Raider way, and you know, treating them like they are, you know, college or high school players. And you know, Gruden believes, like you said, Josh, he is a caricature of himself. And to believe that that sort of behavior was going to work with a guy like Antonio Brown is foolish and was foolish from the beginning. And in terms of early resentment for Brown's going to the Raiders, Charles Robinson of Yahoo reported over the weekend that the Patriots were interested in trading for him back in the spring in the offseason. They're even willing to trade a first round pick.
0: And And the Steelers Steelers
1: didn't didn't want to do it that probably didn't endear Antonio Brown to whatever team he was going to end up with
0: either. So I can imagine a scenario in which you guys would say that it's wrong for a team to accommodate an asshole prima donna jerk player and to set different rules for him. I think I don't want to come off sounding like a management stooge and the Raiders (laughs) are clearly like not the the best run franchise and Gruden and, and Mayock both seem like a little bit high on their own supply. That being said, I can imagine being a guy on that team and not wanting Antonio Brown around based on, they already were setting different rules for him, like based on, you know, the, in the first episode of hard knocks, they made this whole big like thing out of this, you know, undrafted rookie from last chance, you You know, he got hurt and they like cut him to make a point about how, oh, you've got to like really want to be here. And Antonio Brown is off like fucking doing whatever the hell it is he's doing, like not practicing with the team, doing, um, you know, his own drills with his own trainer. And they're talking about what a great guy and what a great talent he is. I mean, they were – how differently can you treat someone? And there has to be a point at which, look – Again, I have no sympathy for the Raiders. I think that um, the NFL CBA is bad. But, like, what are what are they expected or, or supposed to do with Players, a guy who, like, won't play? Teammates hate this shit.
1: They, they were no doubt in the locker room when the hard knocks cameras were turned off, rolling their eyes and getting pissed off that this asshole was making a mockery of their own work because they are there doing the work. That is required of them, and he wasn't. Teams, players despise this kind of behavior. They don't like having these prima donnas dictate. Having said that, the Raiders chose to trade for him. And that is the part of this that leaves me with zero sympathy for these assholes. So either you decide (laughs) that like you want to bring someone like Antonio Brown in with all of the baggage, you're not going to bring him to heel. Maybe Bill Belichick really is the only coach in the NFL. No, the Steelers and Mike Tomlin. The Steelers
0: and Mike Tomlin kept him, uh, around for like eight years. And he, uh, you know, it wasn't until the very end that that relationship broke apart. And so we don't necessarily know.
3: Reportedly, by the way, because he threw a football at Ben Roethlisberger.
0: And yeah, nobody likes Ben Roethlisberger. So I think, (laughs) no, but seriously, I think when that went down, we said, and everybody said really that the Steelers were being dumb. They were, Mm -hmm. Losing all this this cap room, the Raiders were getting this like great talent for just a few picks. But maybe behind the scenes, the Steelers and Mike Tomlin or whoever else were doing an amazing job keeping everyone together. Maybe right. Antonio Brown didn't start acting in the more kind of outward public teammate and management pissing off way until later in his tenure. But this is really the Steelers' fault for making him seem normal for. <laughs> For most of his career, but um, let's talk about the collective bargaining agreement. Howard Bryant tweeted, um, "It appears players are finding new and, and disruptive ways to engineer their unrestricted free agency. I hope this kind of effort goes into the next CBA." And so the argument there, and this is kind of tied into the Anthony Davis thing and players demanding trades when they have increasing amount of time left on their, their deals in the NBA, but this notion that in the absence of more player-friendly um, rules and collective bargaining agreements for for um, for leagues, that players will find a way, that in this era, the empowerment era, players will figure out how to get where they wanna get. Do you think that is is what's going on here, Stefan?
1: I think partly that's what's going on here I mean, it's hard to be an NFL superstar even and look at the absence of guarantees, though those are those are happening with more with greater frequency. Yeah, Julio, Jones. Julio Jones, Julio Jones's contract over the weekend.
0: Yeah, just got like a deal that's like ninety seven percent guaranteed that's unprecedented in the league. Top receiver deal in the league. Antonio Brown did not have a deal with that many guarantees in it, even before the guarantees got voided. Right. So players and their agents are notice all of this. They're not
1: dumb to the lack of guarantees and the lack of influence that they have over their careers. And they're going to do whatever they can to, to engineer that in their own ways, especially when they look at the NBA and they look at other sports that do have those sorts of 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 promises built in to, to their contracts. So the question is what happens in the next CBA? How does the NFL give something and what do they get in exchange for giving players more guaranteed money and maybe more um, power over getting out of contracts at uh, at different stages of their career? Um, you know, the, the talk is like moving to an 18 game season and what, trade-offs do you need to do to achieve that? They've got to be probably pretty high trade-offs. One of the things that's been talked about is in the 18-game season, the NFL would have to give the players a lot to get two more games back. Another thing that people talk about is an expanded playoffs. But regardless, more games, more hits, more deterioration, more injuries, um, a lot of revenue is going to have to come toward the players or a lot more in terms of player freedom and guaranteed money.
0: I guess the final kind of story here, Ben, is the Patriots. They blew out the Steelers on Sunday Night Football this week. Brown did not play against his former team. He's going to be eligible to play in week two. But this is kind of a classic Patriots move. It's like how they dealt for Randy Moss from the Raiders uh, more than a decade ago. They now – Went from having a thin receiving core to having Julian Edelman, uh, Antonio Brown, Josh Gordon. Josh Gordon. Josh Gordon, yeah. This is, I think, both for fans and for other teams, just like yet another data point of this franchise kind of having dominion over the league yeah. in what seems like an unfair way, an annoying way. I don't know how you would frame it.
3: I think that what really remains to be seen is whether Antonio Brown actually likes playing for the Patriots. I think we're kind of assuming that, but I think given what we were just talking about, uh, this is someone who doesn't seem to really like rules or being told what to do. uh, And that is kind of incompatible with playing professional football. Um, So I I wouldn't be surprised if we were here, you guys were having this discussion again in a week where it went after Antonio Brown retires, (laughs) you know uh, I I think, yes, I think, I think, it's, you know, the Patriots have built up this reputation through Moss and through through other players, uh, but I think that this, uh, as it is for the CBA, as it was for the Raiders, will be perhaps the most extreme uh, kind of test case for player empowerment that they have seen as well. Yeah, and I guess
0: we'll see very soon how much of this was performance art and how much of it was real acting out.
1: Yeah, and it's fun for the media to sort of talk about Bill Belichick and make fun of him, you know, the grumpy old guy in front of the microphone at press conferences. But the thing you always hear is that players actually like playing for Bill Belichick.
0: They respect the fact that he's such an asshole and will cut them at the at the drop of a hat. Everybody loves that. It's the great irony.
3: Isn't it just that he likes you fine if you, if you quote-unquote, do your job? I mean, that's kind of... That's, so that seems to be what Antonio Brown, in his way, has been asking for this whole time. It's like, just let me show up when I want to play the game, and if I play the game well, then let me do whatever I want. And uh, that's kind of, I guess, how how it might go in New England.
1: Yeah, except that the Patriots over the years have found ways to deal with players that come in with some baggage. Um, Randy Moss, I mean, they've made exceptions for the way that Tom Brady behaves. They've made exceptions for the way that Rob Gronkowski behaved with the team. So it's not unprecedented that, that Bill Belichick can find a way to accommodate Antonio Brown's personality.
0: All right, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I and Ben will discuss the opening weekend of the college football season with an emphasis on Michigan's near defeat to Army, the phenomenon of the near upset in college football. Let's discuss. If you want to hear that, you're not a member, you can sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can do that signing up at slate.com slash plus. On Saturday afternoon in Clemson, South Carolina, the Clemson Tigers played what was supposed to be, according to the Vegas Oddsmakers, their toughest game of the regular season. The Texas A&M Aggies, who played Clemson close at home last year, did not present any kind of challenge, though. Clemson dominated 24-10 when it was 24-3 until the final seconds. Clemson destroyed Alabama to win last year's national title. They now have a clear path to make the college football playoff for the fifth straight season under their head coach, Dabo Swinney. Ben, you are still with us. You wrote a great piece for Slate last week about how Clemson became a football power because before Swinney took over 11 years ago, it really was not a football power. In that piece, you focused on a guy named Thad Turnipseed. Who is Thad Turnipseed? Why did you want to write about
3: him? Uh, well, I, I'm kind of interested in in how college programs uh, succeed or fail, right? Like, I, and, and as you said, Clemson was a fine program uh, under Tommy Bowden. You know, they won more than they lost, but I don't think anyone thought of them as as an elite or a blue blood uh, school. It was kind of, a, you know, they won a national championship in the '80s, but that was, seemed kind of like an outlier. Um, and, and it was after last year's national championship where, as you mentioned, they were so dominant over, over Alabama, which of course is, is the dominant team of, of this, uh, generation in college football. And they just embarrassed them in, in the final. And I kind of started wondering, well, how do you do this? How do you just make this out of, out of, out of, from scratch? Uh, and so I looked a little bit into the program and then, and I'm, And to be honest, I found that turnip seed because I was looking at the names of people on Clemson's coaching staff and support staff, and I thought he had the most interesting name. Turns out he also has one of the most interesting jobs because he runs their recruiting program uh, and he built their uh, football facility, which is like in, you know, the perpetual arms race of college football facilities. It is the, you know, nuclear bomb to destroy all nuclear bombs. It has a, a wiffle ball field. It has a bowling alley. Uh, it has a nap room. It has an arcade.
0: When you said wiffle ball field, Stefan committed to Clemson. I, I committed to Clemson immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I think I have eligibility.
3: And as I kind of point, I made in new piece. And with Pat Turner Seed and with Dabo Sweeney. They have covered kind of every base, Fun not intended, of what a certain kind of 17 year old, 18 year old prospect would want.
1: This is a tactic that every big school, we just talked about LSU building that, the, a huge facility designed to basically cradle to grave the football players so they never have to leave. That's really dark. Their, for <laughs> four years.
0: Cradle to grave.
1: The idea is that they are completely under the sway of the program. Every big school has figured that part out. That's why there are tutors inside the, the athletic department building, and that's why there are all these amenities, and that's why there are nap rooms, and that's why there are their own cafeterias. Um, Clemson, though, it seems, has just taken it to the highest possible level in terms of spending, uh, $55 million dollars, to renovate the, the football complex um, and the sort of, as you say, explicit, literal goal of keeping the players there as much as possible.
3: Yeah, I mean, so, and, and it pays off. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned in the piece, uh, if you look at their uh, APR, which is academic progress rate, um, it's a, you know, a measure the NCAA uses, uh, they keep players in their program. Uh, they keep players in school, they keep players uh, you know making their grades, uh, and when you look at the people on the field, it's upperclassmen. So you, they really do, uh, you know, with this facility and other things about the program, a very impressive job of getting players developed and, you know, this idea of keeping them around the facility. So they have more time with the coaches and very the coaches impressive.
0: Can,
1: also Orwellian.
3: Yeah. I mean, they, well, check sure, into the di- sure. they check
1: into the dining hall, scan their thumbs and they're told what to eat.
3: Uh, yes, I think that there are two ways of looking at it, right? Yeah, I mean, as as a college football fan, I'm I'm impressed. As a person, I'm a little <laughs> taken aback by the extent to the, to which they go with some of this stuff.
0: Well, it's kind of the opposite of what we were just talking about with Antonio Brown. It's the ability to have players conform and all be doing the same thing in the same place at the same time all the time and actually be happy about it and want to be there. Um, And I think Clemson, more than any other school, you know, top-level, high-level football program has figured out how to do that. And I think a big thing that distinguished them from Alabama, which has been their big national rival over the last five years, is not just the ability to keep the players there, but the ability to keep the staff together. Alabama is constantly having to churn Top assistants, and I think that you know there's an argument that that finally caught up to them in the national championship game last year. Whereas Clemson has these dudes. I mean, you wrote about um, you know Turnipseed having an amazing re- resume to be an athletic director and just deciding, I don't want to leave. I want to be here with with Dabo because this is where I'm meant to be. Brent Venables, the defensive coordinator, a million schools would want to hire him, and he just hasn't. Wanted to leave either. And so that's been where, you know, I, I found it really interesting in your piece, your description of how Dabo and Clemson kind of convinces these guys that there's no higher ideal than working for Dabo at Clemson. Right. Because you could argue that the players really don't have a choice. Yeah. If they
1: want to leave, they got to sit out a year in most cases, they're not getting paid. The coaching staff, there are millions of dollars more in some cases awaiting them if they were to go elsewhere.
3: Right, and, and I think that goes back to kind of the you, one, you know the uniqueness of Clemson's situation. It's in a small town, a uh, town about 17,000 people. Uh, you know it's at the base of the mountains. it's not a metropolis. So I think what, what Dabo does uh, very well is he finds people who are going to want to stay in that situation. So he finds people like that. Turnip who's from who's from Alabama. Uh, he finds people. Uh, like the coordinators, who you know, I think he pre-selects the people around him to be content, you know, in a small town in the South, just caring about football, uh, you know, and 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 obviously you can you can get some pretty pretty talented people that way. And then and then there's the other part of it where you know he kind of repeatedly uh, and surreptitiously uses the phrase "bloom where you're planted" yeah. uh, at every possible opportunity, kind of like builds a whole ethos around the program that. You know being ambitious is not that great. you know, so uh, you know again, there's two sides of it. There's the part where you know I, for some of these guys, I certainly understand why you know for for um you know for the coordinators, like you know why move yourself to to Kansas, <laughs> a job that's always coming open to lose eleven games a year? you know, when you you have your family, you have your you have your life, you get paid a ton of money. That's the other part of it. They pay their coordinators to you know. 2 million a million dollars a year. So, you know, I could see, you know, I could see their perspective on it.
0: So, a couple of folks that we work with who don't really follow um college football read this piece, Bannon said that it was incredibly creepy and that they didn't. Like I think for us we're like, yeah, this is just kind of how stuff goes. This seems like kind of an extreme example like the anecdote of the guy at the Clemson all-in meeting who silenced his phone, even though his wife was nine months pregnant and missed seven calls from her. Like, hey. that seems like on the outer limits of college football. Wait, wait, wait. the seven calls were her calling to say, I'm going to the hospital now. That's yeah, yeah, whatever, details. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> like, people who, who read this stuff, and I think this is a broader comment, actually, about how— unbelievably strange and often inhumane college football and college sports culture is in that like we as college sports fans, Ben, have just kind of internalized it and see it as normal. And it sometimes takes an outsider to be like, this is incredibly bizarre. I,
1: don't know. I thought Ben did a really good job of <laughs> persuading even someone that follows sports the way that we do, that this is really creepy. I mean, the paragraph where you quote a bunch of different people repeating Dabo Sweeney's catchphrase, Bloom Where You Planted, I was completely creeped out after I read that, and my notes say it's a religious cult is what Clemson (laughs) is, and football is at the center of it.
3: Sure. Yeah. Football and church. I mean, that's the that's the other part. big part of it, uh, you know, is 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 Dabo's a, a, a outspoken evangelical guy. Uh, he recruits people. He tells them that they're going to you know, they're going to have a Christian focus in the program. The coaches are Christian. Tad Turnipse public school, by the Christian. way. Right. It's a public school. And, you know, and then as I said in the piece, they've said that they comply with every every law regarding the separation of church and state. But at the same time, uh, we know that they have baptisms after practice, sometimes uh, the pond next to the practice field. So. So, right. That's that's another key part of it is that you got got to get people who who are willing to, uh, you know, be. Not even you know put up with that, but uh, to take part in it, and you got to find players and you got to find coaches who are who are willing to do that. And that out of public school, and then you know they maybe they cross the line there.
1: Sports Illustrated had a piece this week also about just that and the extent to which Clemson is this sort of religious football factory. Um, it would take someone to you know there have been investigations by outside groups um, that have raised questions about whether this is
0: legal or not the way that Swinney runs this program um, the Chronicle of Higher Education did a really long and comprehensive piece about this way back in 2013 like the Sports mm-hmm. Illustrated piece was valuable but most of what was laid out there was already known because of that that great Chronicle reporting from yeah. six years ago
1: yeah um, but it would take someone challenging this legally you'd need plaintiffs basically to bring Clemson to bring a case against Clemson um, You know, to us, looking at it, I mean, to me, it is creepy. I mean, the turnip seed you say in the piece has said that recruits are screened for prayerfulness, among (laughs) other things, during their on-campus visits. Do they open the door for a lady? How do they talk to their mom? Do they pray before they eat? This is fucked up. Um, (laughs) And whether, as is repeated over and over again, that Swinney doesn't proselytize or pressure— or discriminate he says i've had atheists on this team i'm sure it's again it's a public institution and the issue of whether this appears to be okay is what is central not whether he actually does something to restrict non-christians from being on the team
3: well and i think that the point about about uh the success of the, the program is crucial and the need for a plaintiff i mean right like in that sports illustrated piece you have guys talking about actions that certainly seem, you know, there's a, so a guy saying I was in his office and I was a, a player, a former player saying I was struggling on off the field, you know, and he said, well, Hey, why don't you, why don't you become born again? And, and, you know, to me, uh, uh seeing a, a public employee say that is, is probably improper, but the player says, well, it, it was great. And I did it. It was great for my life. You know? And so as, as Josh has pointed out, uh, you, you know, you got six guys drafted last year. They won four conference championships. They won two national titles, that senior class. So, it's going to take someone who's unhappy with that before, before anything is going to change. And right now, when you're, when you're winning your toughest game of the year by 14 points, uh, there's not going to be a lot of unhappy people in that locker room.
0: And the players are self-selecting, I think, um, to a large degree. I mean, in the recruiting process, you often hear about the importance of recruiting the parents. And if you're recruiting, especially in the South— yeah. Um and you go into a house and talk about um you know God and and church and prayerfulness that's not really going to limit your recruiting pool. Um, <laughs> right. It's going to help and telling um you know parents that you're going to take care of their child spiritually. Um you know in the Sports Illustrated piece one of the the parts of it that was new information and was valuable was talking about how that helped Clemson get the number one quarterback recruit in the 2020 class, a guy DJ um, Ugolele. And uh, Trevor Lawrence, the star quarterback who's a sophomore now, is uh, Christian and talks about it a lot. Um, And so I think Clemson is definitely helping itself rather than hurting itself by taking this approach as part of this larger Approach around program cohesion and um, creating an, an environment that's enticing to, you know, teenagers. It's a, but it's a very cloistered environment. It's a restricted environment, and Swinney is certainly not a
1: progressive when it comes to anything having to do with player rights in college football. He openly has talked about the, uh, his his opposition to the idea of players ever being compensated. I mean, this is not a guy that is there to, you know. To to He's a guy that's there to find the best football players and win championships, like most of these guys. But there is zero evidence that he has a sort of larger vision for what college football could be for these kids that he's recruiting.
0: He also talked about how players protesting were, like, disgracing the legacy of Martin Luther King. Yeah. And this is a guy who has the highest paying contract in all of college sports for a coach. I guess the question, Ben, is, um, you know, we're picking on Clemson a lot here. The religious aspect is Clemson specific, but a lot of what we're talking about is more common in college football. So is it right for us just to focus on Clemson because they're on top, or should this actually just be a bigger conversation about what the norms are in college football?
3: I think yeah, I think the latter. I mean, I you know, I, I agree with with uh, with um everyone who said, well, this, you know, some of these behaviors are kind of creepy, but i but I it's like you're saying. I think basically what they've done is they've taken everything that happens in every college football program or most college football programs, and they just do it, I don't know, 10% more, 15% more. They just take it to a little, I mean, certainly they're not the only college program where the coaches is, is espousing Christianity. Uh, I mean, they're not the only college program where people watching recruits on an official visit probably, you know, go back to their spreadsheet and document the recruits behavior. I, I bet that happens other places too. Uh, and so, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that, that, and, and and what what Dabo has done is he's taken this existing system, this status quo, and he's just taken it to an extreme that kind of that kind of exposes some of those uh, absurdities uh, in a way that maybe maybe other programs don't. Um, but but yes, absolutely, I don't think that there's. Uh, programs where, you know, I don't think that there's by contrast any program where the players are encouraged to, you know, spend time on their own and and think freely and, you know, come into the football facility a couple hours a week if you want to. I don't think that I don't think that happens anywhere.
0: Another thing we should note is that if true, um, you know, there's this allegation on an FBI wiretap, a Clemson assistant basketball coach said that the reason that the football program is so successful is that they pay players under the table. Clemson, um, the athletic department has said, "What? What did they say exactly, Ben? That they looked they said, into it and there's no credence. They they give we, no credence to it.
3: Yeah, they've said that they uh, they will investigate it and that. And the latest uh, word from them was that they've not found anything improper. And, and but again, it's if if they were doing it, uh, would they be the only team in ACC doing it? The only team in the South doing it? That's Certainly not. Very, very unlikely. Yeah, uh, I would. Be nice for the
0: players if they're getting a little money. Would <laughs> right. make uh, Dabo into a bit of a hypocrite, but that's yeah. okay. As, as, long, as, as, as long
1: as they tithe some of the money that they're given <laughs> by the boosters, that's right.
3: okay.
0: Ben, we'll post a link to your story on Thad, seed and Clemson Football on our show page. Thank you for coming on the show this week. Thanks, guys. Now it is time for After Balls. Let's go back to Serena Williams. There's been a lot of talk about how she won the US Open. 20 years ago. She was 17. But Serena Williams' first Grand Slam final came in 1998 when she was 16. It was in mixed doubles at the French Open and her partner was, I'm sure you're going to guess this. No, I'm not going to guess it. Luis Lobo of Argentina. Of course. The immortal Luis Lobo. Serena and Lobo lost in the final to her sister Venus and Justin Gimelstob. The less said about Justin Gimmelstaub, the better. Just Google him. Uh, But anyway, a short while later at Wimbledon, Serena won her first Grand Slam title, also in mixed doubles, this time with Max Murney. That September, Serena suggested that Lobo and Murney could have a wrestling battle to see who could continue on as her mixed doubles partner, with Murney saying, sure. There is no indication that said wrestling battle ever happened, though. Uh, Serena and Merny did win the U.S. Open that year. While Luis Lobo became a coach. He works with Carlos Moya, David Nalbandian, Juan Monaco. And in 2019, he became an afterball name. Stefan, what is your Luis Lobo?
1: The high school football season has begun, which means the reports of Friday Night Carnage have resumed. There have already been, by the Google counting and retweeting of Kent Johnson, who tracks this stuff, at least three catastrophic brain injuries, a half dozen airlifts, and dozens of rides in ambulances in the name of King Football. Last year, I became obsessed with real-time injury retweets from our Fields of Glory, compiled and distributed mainly by three football and brain injury gadflies, Johnson, Kimberly Archie, and a Twitter user are named Concerned Mom. I read a bunch of them here, and I keep rereading them now. The happy play-by-play of a game in a place you've never heard of, interrupted by the report of an injury, a hushed crowd, the player down for X minutes, teammates and opponents on a knee, hands held, the player stretchered off, the good news of the player thumbs-upping the crowd, the game resuming, the final score reported matter-of-factly. But the tweets are sometimes accompanied by photos of the ambulance on the field removing the wounded. They are scenes so uniquely American they could have been painted by Hopper or Rockwell. Like the words, collectively they are repetitive and numbing and familiar and banal. Individually though, they are grotesquely mesmerizing. They convey the stillness of tragedy and in so doing drain football of what makes it alluring the speed and violence and testosterone. Exposing it finally for what it is, an injury delivery system. They are a perfect representation of our most popular sport in these times, CTE porn with kids. Here's an archetypal one. Last Friday, Apollo Ridge versus Carlinton in Western Pennsylvania. Local reporter Kyle Dawson tweets the news. Carlinton's Chauncey Mickens is down after a first down carry, and they're bringing a stretcher and ambulance across the field to attend to him. And he attaches a photo. The red ambulance is on the far side of the field. Parked between the 45 and 35 yard lines, framed perfectly by the yardage sticks behind it. In the foreground, on the field, a group of Apollo Ridge players kneels in front of the coaches. The bench players kneel along the bottom edge of the frame. The Carlington players kneel just beyond the ambulance, watching their teammate, his body hidden from view, get loaded onto a gurney. It's night. The field is bathed in light. The refs and the ambulance cast long shadows. Lurking in the dark in the distance is a yellow school bus, which i imagine took the visiting players home except for one this past saturday night ventura county california Two ambulances parked side-by-side side on the 35. A giant illuminated image of a lion, the home team mascot, glows behind metal bleachers. Players from Oaks Christian and Sierra Canyon High Schools cluster in a V formation like geese as senior linebacker and running back Mr. Williams is loaded into the ambulance with a neck injury. Williams remained nearly motionless on the Oaks Christian Stadium turf for more than 20 minutes after being tackled on a running play with 132 left in the third quarter, the local paper reports. Big Bear, California, August 23rd. The ambulance is parked at an angle on the clumpy grass field. The oversized coaches hover over the fallen player. Three refs stand a few feet away, the game ball at their feet, ready for the inevitable restart. Two people watch from a small camera tower above the stands. Injury timeout for Big Bear injury on the fourth play of the game, tweets the photographer Kathy Porty, senior editor of the Big Bear Grizzly, the local paper. No details on injury. Bears down to 23 players suited up for the game. On and on they go. There are at least a few every weekend. Here's one more. The most morbidly beautiful photo I found from the Moab, Utah Times, August 15th. Grand County High School, full pads preseason practice. It's twilight, a single stand of lights fronts a cottony line of trees which fronts the rust colored mountains. This ambulance is parallel to the yard lines, pointed at empty stands, topped by a press box the color of Roland Garros clay, labeled Red Devils in a funky font. The players on their knees, Face the rear of the ambulance, a single fireman walks in the foreground across the track toward the scene. The unnamed player suffered a bruised spinal cord, the paper reported. It was unclear whether he would be able to play in the team's first game later that day. We'll post links to some of these images so you can get a feel for what the ambulance on the field photo looks like and why they're so captivating.
0: Josh, what's your Luis Lobo? On Saturday night in Austin, the LSU Tigers came away with a glorious 45-38 win over the Texas Longhorns. It was a hot and humid day, temperatures nearing 100. Players kept leaving the field with cramps. On one long drive in the third quarter, four guys fell to the ground and had to leave. It turned out that every single player who cramped up during the game was on the LSU defense. There's been some speculation on message boards and in the Texas-based media, uh, after the game that these players were faking that they fell to the ground to slow down the pace of play, catch their breath, and stop the Texas offense's momentum. And they did this so LSU didn't have to call a timeout or take a penalty. A couple of LSU players, Grant Delpit and Michael Divinity, it was reported, did go to the locker room to get IVs. So if they were faking, then that's a pretty amazing commitment to the bit. But it is certainly possible that not all of these were legitimate cramps. And so now, Stefan, you talked about Real football injuries. Uh I will talk about fake football injuries. Uh, Fake cramps have been an epidemic in college football since the rise of high-speed, up-tempo offenses, particularly in the last decade. The New York Times ran a piece in 2010 about the injury-faking opponents of Chip Kelly's hyperspeed Oregon Ducks noting that Cal actually suspended its defensive line coach for telling a player to flop intentionally. A year later, there's a mini-controversy after the Giants faked injuries to slow down the St. Louis Rams on Monday Night Football. An item in Pro Football Talk noted an earlier incident in which, quote, Patriots linebacker Willie McGinnis went down with an alleged injury late in the fourth quarter of a 2003 game against the Colts, only to, quote, recover a minute later to get back on the field and make the game-saving tackle. Pro Football Talk also mentioned that opponents of the Boomer and Sam Weish no-huddle Cincinnati Bengals of the 80s and 90s used to fake injuries, and that Weish, quote, thought the referee should award his team a touchdown as a penalty for a palpably unfair act. So college football and the NFL have rules to deal with injuries in the last minute in uh, college and the last two minutes of a half In the NFL, um, they charge the injured player's team a timeout. There's the potential to have a runoff of the game clock. So that clock stopping just can't be as easy as having a guy uh, fall down. And so I was interested to learn when all this started. It wasn't actually with... Oregon, again, it wasn't even with uh, the Cincinnati Bengals. I thought that this was just a, a scourge of modern football, but it turns out that this used to happen all the time and that those rules about the last minute of the half in, in college actually stem from a particular incident. November 21st, 1953. I also learned about this from that same Pro Football Talk item, by the way. On November 21st, 1953, number one Notre Dame played Iowa in South Bend. I'm going to read... The AP's story on the game, which I found on newspapers.com in a newspaper in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, the Gazette. So this is the Iowa spin on the game. The headline is, Veracchione should get an Oscar. Frank Veracchione, Notre Dame's 205-pound junior tackle from Natick Mass, qualified for an Oscar Saturday for his dramatic portrayal of an injured football player. As the clock ticked off the final seconds before halftime, Veracchione let out a squeal on the field, held his back, and began staggering. Officials called an injured player timeout, stopping the clock with one second remaining in the half. Farrakhioni was replaced with time for one play. Notre Dame scored on a 12-yard pass. The conversion was made, giving the Irish a 7-7 halftime tie. The game eventually ended in a 14-14 deadlock. Farrakhioni played all but a few minutes of the last half. Was he really hurt? In his dormitory room, two hours after the game, a reporter—and I'll pause to say here, this is intrepid reporting— A reporter found the husky tackle lying down and looking at the picture of health. He would not admit anything. He said he had no comment whatsoever. No use asking questions because I'm not going to talk about it, he insisted. A reporter asked, don't you think feigning injury to stop the clock was using your head? You didn't know how many official timeouts the team had and you didn't want to take a chance of the team later getting penalized for too many timeouts. I'm not saying anything, Ferry replied. We saw you get up after the play just previously the reporter said then you looked at the clock and started screaming and holding your back or leg where you really hurt what do you think he parried Johnny Ladner Notre Dame's All-America halfback was asked about Veracioni he said pretty smart thinking wasn't it that tricky tricky fighting irish Frank Veracioni died last year at the age of 85 he became known as Fainton Frank the Cedar Rapids Gazette <laughs> actually printed a poem about this incident that began, Oh, patty dear, and did you hear the news that's going around, how Notre Dame is winning games with players on the ground. The first to hit the ground this day was Frank Veracchione. The Irish claim that he was hurt, but others cry baloney. Neil Rosendahl had a good blog post on this that noted the consequences of this uh, this action. Notre Dame fell in the AP polls, which back then there's no... BCS. There's now the the AP poll was actually what determined the national championship. So they fell to number two. They ended up um, behind Maryland. So this is the reason for Maryland winning uh, the national. It's it's only national championship. Notre Dame could not climb back to number one in the polls. Uh, another consequence is that rules were put in um, about stopping the clock at the end of each half, as I noted earlier. And then there's this is like actually controversial, and I'm not sure who's right here. But Frank Leahy, the legendary Notre Dame coach of of the day, did not coach after that season. It was reported at the time and has long been believed that it was because of health reasons. Um, but this blog post I read by Neil Rosendahl, and I've saw some other people make this argument as well, that Leahy actually reputationally was damaged By this moment and by Notre Dame getting the reputation for feigning injuries this blog post says the public stance behind Leahy's retirement has always been there for health reasons but um, Notre Dame's administration particularly Father Hesburgh was incensed by Leahy's fainting Irish tactics and essentially let Leahy go Hmm. so if anybody is a Notre Dame football historian wants to weigh in on what the real reason is let us know that is our show for today Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, stick around. We've got more Hang Up to come if you are a Slate Plus member. In our bonus segment, this week, we talk with Ben Mathis Lilly about the phenomenon of the near college football upset as exemplified by this weekend's Michigan Army game.
3: You're looking at Michigan playing poorly against the Army and looking at when the guy was lining up a field goal, looking at kind of an epic loss. And then you can just feel the air getting taken out of all the games that come after it, which is why in a weird way, watching that game was worse in some senses than watching the Ohio State last year, which was like another crushing defeat, you know, at the end of the season. To
0: hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening.